Lord, we pray for our time in Exodus tonight specifically. Uh, as we look at this book of redemption, I pray that we would value the redemption that we have in Christ. I pray that you would allow the stories that we get to read through and study and, and look at the details of that in them we would be uh, quickened in our faith, that we would be strengthened in our weakness, that we would be encouraged in our doubt. Um, I pray for the kids tonight as, as they are in Exodus 2 and, and possibly partially in 3. I, I pray that um, you would allow their time to be sweet. I pray that you would give our children understanding. Uh, I pray that they would not just be entertained uh, for the next hour, um, but that they would be instructed in the truth. I pray that our children would be equipped for good work uh, that puts your glory on display. Uh, Lord, we go to the Word uh, tonight and every time we gather because... We really don't have anything good to say outside of it. Uh, I'm thankful for your truth. I'm thankful that you revealed it to us. I'm thankful uh, that we don't have to wing it, uh, but that your very breathed out words are what we get to engage uh, when we gather. Lord, we love you very much. We count it a sweet privilege, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If this is your first time with us on Wednesday nights, we generally go through uh, a book of the Bible, a verse at a time, and so we spent the last few years in Genesis, and last week was our first week in Exodus. And so uh, we did Exodus 1 last week, and we'll look at Exodus 2 this week, and then we'll get crazy and maybe look at Exodus 3 next week. So Exodus is largely a book of redemption, and today it's interesting because we're going to meet the author of Exodus in his own writing about himself, uh, which is actually very, it's very humbling as we read through this. Um, as of last week, what is the state of Israel in Exodus 1? Where do we find Israel? God's people, his chosen, chosen covenant people, where do we find them? Slavery. Slavery. Okay, why did that happen? I thought they were God's people. Say that again. Yes, they were, they were numerous. How did they get to be numerous? God's blessing. God's blessing. So God's blessing led them to slavery. slavery. Fantastic. Y'all eager to be blessed by the Lord. Um, okay, so they're in slavery. Uh, the Pharaoh has aimed to oppress them because they are so many in number. Uh, he is uh, he's realizing that they are multiplying quite quickly. Uh, it is not a natural, normal birth rate that they are uh, moving into. Um, we're looking at uh, a couple million Israelites. And so um, he says, well, let's, let's work them hard. We'll, we'll, we'll turn them into slaves. And that just, they had more babies when they were worked harder. And so um, it didn't work and, and it got really bad. How, how bad did it get at the end of uh, chapter 1? Yeah, it's really brutal. It's quite horrific, violent, and brutal. It went from let's work them really hard, let's set taskmasters over them, let's take, the, take away the straw so they make bricks without straw, make it harder for them. We, we want to intentionally be a burden on them so as, to, um, so as to make sure that they don't become greater than us. And he takes it a step further. That was very public. Then he goes privately to the midwives and says, uh, if it... Is a boy, 
uh, I want you to kill them on the birth stool, kill the boys. And what did the midwives fear more than Pharaoh? The Lord, yeah, and, and, and that's good because their actions, in fact, um, went very far in the fact that you're sitting here as a people who, who know the Lord today. And so um, what would have happened if all the males had been killed on the birth stool? All of Israel would have become what? Yeah, Egyptians, extinct, yeah. They, they would have just kind of become a part of the culture and really the Israelite women would have only been used for the sake of birthing more slaves, and so that would have been horrible. And so the midwives feared the Lord, and the Lord blessed them in that. And they said to Pharaoh that the, these Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they're vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Which at first sounds like, well, maybe they're telling a lie, but when you consider how many babies were made during this time, I'm guessing that they were masters at it and could go about it quickly. So, um, so Israel, that doesn't work, and... He goes public again. The Pharaoh goes public again, and he says, okay, here's the deal. All of my people, I want you to take any Israelite first, uh, any males who are born, and I want you to throw them into what? The river. Now, that, that's really violent. I mean, think about what that's like. A Hebrew mother nursing her newborn, and any Egyptian who says, oh, that's a male, throws him into the river. Horrible, horrible circumstance. God's people are being greatly oppressed and afflicted at this point at the end of chapter 1. And chapter 2 actually brings about good news. We often look at Exodus in light of circumstances. And I want to steer us away from that. Uh, we started off with this expression last week and we'll continue it as we study through Exodus. But there's a way of studying Exodus where it's like, let's look at it in light of our circumstances. Like their circumstances were bad, which is sort of like the way my circumstances are bad. Um, maybe their harsh work environment is sort of like my boss who's harsh towards me. Maybe their unfair treatment is sort of like my unfair treatment. We just compare the circumstances. But what we need to do as we study Exodus is really look at, look at our sin in light of their circumstances. Does that make sense? We're not just comparing circumstances. What their circumstances are revealing to us is realities about our sin. Um, the cruel bondage of the enslaved Hebrews pictures the tyrannical dominion of sin over its captives. The deliverer raised up by God in the person of Moses points to the greater deliverer, even our Lord Jesus Christ. So what that also leads us to is the fact that Exodus is all about Jesus. Uh, it's flawed thinking that says the Old Testament um, wasn't about Jesus and the New Testament is largely about Jesus. The whole thing is about Jesus. There are... Um, it's very Jesus-y, and we're going to look at that in, in detail in each chapter. Um, but Exodus is all about Jesus. And rather than being quickened to eagerly anticipate our freedom from bad circumstances, my hope is that our study of Exodus would quicken us to eagerly anticipate our, our freedom from the bondage to slavery of sin, the bondage and slavery to sin. Does that make sense? Like that we won't just look forward to the day that we no longer have to deal with all the hurt and the junk in the world, but that we would look forward to the day that we are finally freed from the bondage of sin and be able to worship our Lord wholeheartedly, that that would be something we actually anticipate because there's a lot of things that we can anticipate above that. And my hope is that we would anticipate that rightly in the right order. Um, do you look forward to the day you will no longer struggle with sin and will be able to truly worship Jesus wholeheartedly? So chapter 1 
covered a few hundred years, so that's a lot to cover in one night. Um, tonight, chapter 2 covers about 80 years. So if you're taking notes, that's a fun little fact to write down. Chapter 2 covers about 80 years. We're going to look at Moses' birth, him growing up, um, you know, murdering a guy, things like that, um, and uh, getting married, all that fun life change. So look at 2, verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Now, just to be clear, why was she hiding him? So that he wouldn't die, so that he wouldn't be thrown into the Nile with, with others. Consider how difficult it would be to hide a newborn for three months. Well, we just had the kids in here for a minute, right? It's a little louder. It'd be difficult to hide a newborn for, for three months. Um, my guess is that he must have really had some pretty unique, uh, tender care early on. Um, we're making a transition here as well. Who have we been focusing on largely through the whole last portion of Genesis and even into the first chapter of Exodus? Joseph. Okay, now we're making a transition from focusing largely on God's work in the life of Joseph to focusing largely on God's work in the life of Moses. Um, from the time of Adam to Christ, Moses may well be one of the greatest ever to be raised up by God for his purposes. And so as we change our focus from looking at the life of Joseph and we, to looking at the life of Moses, really dig in. I mean, as we're reading these stories, don't just see them as long, long ago in a faraway land. See them as your story. See them as a picture of your redemption and import your senses. What does that look like? What does that smell like? What, what's actually happening there? What would it be like to live during this time? What was it like for Moses as a baby? What was it like as he grew up and as he was a part of Egyptian household, but a Hebrew slave and he was taken care of by his mother. I mean, it's a very unique thing. So as I, as I read through this, really dig in and try to pay attention to the details. Um, look at verse 3 through 10. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and, and daubed it with bitumen or bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. Do you think this was easy for her to do as a mother? I mean, consider your own children. No, this was not easy for her to do as a mother. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child. And behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Now, I, I don't know. I, this is hard to make sense of as I'm importing my own senses and saying, what would this be like? I mean, they're going to bathe in a river where Hebrew children are sacrificed. So there's some cultural anomalies here that are, that are not normal. I mean, and, and she, she knew this is where the Hebrew children are thrown in. And then she finds this basket and is able to identify that's one of the Hebrew children. And something happens in her where she has pity. Now look at verse uh, 7. Then his sister, whose sister? Moses' sister, said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? That's a really pivotal point. 
I mean, if she hadn't have done that, it may have turned out a little different. We'll talk about that more in a second. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Now, does any of this sound familiar? When they're taking and making this little floating thing and covering it in pitch, does it sound familiar at all? What does it sound like? The ark. Okay. What are some parallels? There's a remnant that is sustained. Okay. Really? That's awesome. I wish I would have known that. No, it means it's pitch or something when I did a study on this one. Wow. So the pitch in of itself is was a protective barrier for this little boat that Moses is in, protecting him from the water. Cool. If pitch means redemption or atonement, that's pretty awesome. And I feel stupid that I didn't read that. <laughs> Any other parallels to make me look stupid? Yeah, I'm going to sit if you'll, there's some notes here if you need them. Any other parallels? Uh huh. Yep. Yep. What else? By water. And when you think of water, biblically, what, what are you led to? Baptism. Okay, what, is, what does baptism have to do with any of this? New life. Okay. Okay, we'll continue looking at it. A little baby ark. This is very important. Now Moses' name literally means drawn out. We've studied this before, and I, I just... I get excited every time I look at this because his name means drawn out. And it's so indicative of what is being done to God's people from then, from before then, and now. Drawn out. Um, Moses, what all was Moses drawn out of? I mean, I know we haven't gone through the whole book of Exodus, but many of us are familiar. What was he drawn out of? Yeah. What else? Death. Death. Yeah, he, he wasn't killed by a midwife. That's something. Slavery. Slavery. What else? There's a lot of drawn out here. I mean, the fact that his name means drawn out is not just... just just a, a, a fact to throw by the side. It, he was drawn out of many things. I mean, think about when he was in the Red Sea, right? He parts, he's walking across, he turns around, and what does he see? An Egyptian army, and then they get all the way across, and he turns around, and what does he see? 
the waters come in, and he was drawn out of the waters. I mean, he, he must have been like, this seems vaguely familiar. You know, like, was I a baby in a, in a little ark at some point and drawn out? I mean, this, this is this whole theme in life of, of being drawn out. So he was drawn out of the possibility of death. He was not killed by a midwife. He was drawn out of that circumstance. He was drawn out of the river. He was drawn out of the Egyptian family. He was drawn out of the Israelite family for a time and then put back in. He was drawn out of the Red Sea. He was drawn out of the wilderness. And this, all of this drawn out is a picture of redemption. Redemption, redemption, redemption. That's what Exodus is about. And so, drawn out is a picture of redemption. Uh, so, what are some things we have been drawn out of as sinners? Be specific or vague, either way. The world, okay? Death, that's a big one. Our bondage to sin. What else? Drawn out of poverty to live in the house of the king. What else? Hopelessness. Yeah, we, we don't, we're not just going about our way in a manner that has no hope. I mean, we have great hope in what's going to happen and what is happening and what has happened because our Lord is unshakable. He's sovereign. What else have we been drawn out of? God's wrath. Yeah, Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is towards unrighteousness because unrighteousness suppresses the truth. So when you live in an unrighteous way, you're a sinner. You're suppressing the truth, not making it known. When Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, you make him known in the way you live. And that wrath that should be towards you doesn't land on you. It lands on Jesus. And propitiation means wrath absorber. Drawn out of that. What else? I would urge you to think specifically in your own life because none of these studies do much if they're just vague generalities about other people. I mean, hopefully, as we study the Word, we don't stop at letting it be vague generalities about other people, but, but we let it inform our own lives. And it's not that we have a great understanding of our own lives and we go to the Word. When we're in the Word, we have a much better understanding of the realities of what it means to be God's children. And so... I would urge y'all to spend a moment at least thinking what the Lord has drawn you out of. What are these ordeals that you have found yourself in? What is it that you have struggled with? What is it, and you don't have to raise your hand and spill your guts or anything, but like what is it that, that you have um, found yourself in the middle of that, that really just means certain death, if not for one who drew you out? This is meant to be personal. Turn to Revelation 18. I want us to see that this drawn out thing is a theme throughout. And at the end, in, in Revelation, there's a chapter on the fall of Babylon. And it's just this picture of real depravity um, where there's, there's ships full of cargo that all, there's no place to deliver it, there's no place to go, and they just sit in the water weeping, looking at the smoke. Of the land that's been burned up. And um, what we see in Revelation 18, look at verse 1. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was made bright with his glory. 
And he called out with a mighty voice. Now, who do the angels speak on behalf of? God. Yeah, they're not just sharing their angelic thoughts. Um, And so with this mighty voice, they call out, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. And then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measurement of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day. Death and mourning and famine shall be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. So we see the Lord as judge, and he says, come out of her, my people. Like I'm about to place judgment here, and you don't want to be on the receiving end of that. Come out of her, my people. Let's keep reading. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. The speaking of a land. The picture here is, is of worldliness, almost uh, really identified as, as like a, uh, as a harlot or a whore or a mistress. And um, how... Rather than living in accordance with the Lord, you're, you're living in accordance with this worldliness. And so it says that uh, the, they, they see the smoke of her burning. They'll stand far off in fear of her torment and say, alas, alas. This is hopelessness. This is what we're drawn out of. This is what we don't have to say. Because he's already said, come out of her, my people. Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon. Babylon. For in a single hour your judgment has come, and the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore. Listen to this cargo that's of no significance anymore because of the judgment of the Lord. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet, cloth, uh, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of, of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots and slaves, that is human souls, the fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you. And all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet adorned with gold, with jewels, and with pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. And all the shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors, and all those whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of a burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads, and they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city, where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven. And you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. 
Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down by, with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players, trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of a bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth. And all nations were, were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and saints and all who have been slain on the earth. If you find yourself tempted to put your hope in worldly things, go read Revelation 18. If you find yourself tempted to say, I, these, these eternal things that I'm supposed to set my mind on as opposed to worldly things, storing up treasures in heaven, that's a little bit vague. And I, I think I'm going to focus on worldly things. Go read Revelation 18 because what it paints this picture of is great sadness, great hopelessness. Those who said all these things that we found our worth in, it's gone. It's laid waste in a single hour. But that's not God's people. Remember what he said in verse 4. I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins. So the question, um, if not drawn out, what's the result in these verses? Destruction and despair, absolutely. What else? If we're not drawn out. Judge the same. Do, I mean, how, how are we judged differently? Yeah? Yes? What's that mean? Yeah, they don't have that wrath absorber there. They're receiving the wrath of the Lord there towards their unrighteousness because it suppresses the truth. All these lies we've been living in, all this worldliness we've been consumed in is brought to nothing in no time at all. And the Lord has made himself known and he's poured out judgment. But for God's people, he says, come out of her, lest you take part in her sin. So the picture of being drawn out, we're drawn out of the flesh. We set our minds on the things above. We're drawn out of blindness and deafness to the truth. And we are given redemption and salvation in Christ Jesus our Lord. So again, Exodus is very much about Jesus. Um, when we see Moses being drawn out, turn back to Exodus. Now just as Jesus was not an afterthought, neither was faith. Faith is something that has been necessary for all believers who ever walked the earth. Um, I want to look at some of the actions of, of what Moses' mother and Moses' sister and the family did here. What caused um, his mother and his sister to act in, in, in the way that they acted? What, what does it look like just at, at first glance, maybe? What did they see in Moses? He was what? Fine, beautiful. What, what, are, what does y'all's version say? Any other versions? They looked upon the baby and he was goodly, is what some say. I'm not even sure that's a good word, goodly. What'd you say? A fine child. Turn to Hebrews 11. Keep your finger in Exodus. We're going to hit a few different verses here. Keep your finger in Exodus. Turn over to Hebrews 11. 
I want us to see the deeper things that are happening in this verse. Because at first glance, it it could be very, very, um, just kind of fleshly and not very deep at all. At first glance, you you could look here and say, oh, the mother saw that this baby wasn't an ugly baby, but a fine baby, a goodly baby. So let's try to save this one. Like, it looks like it could just be sort of a, a maternal thing. Or, hey, this baby seems somewhat unique. Let's go ahead and do this action. And if you look at Hebrews 11, look at verses 23 through 28. That's the nice thing about having the entire canon of Scripture, is all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable so that we may be trained for good work and have clearer understanding that, that, that God is, is always doing more, like he told Habakkuk, uh, more than, than we know. And so we turn to Hebrews for clarity in Exodus. It's, it's pretty cool, actually. But Hebrews 11, verse 23 says this. By faith, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Here, Revelation 18. Fleeting, fleeting, fleeting. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. So my question, again, I'll pose it. What caused Moses' mother and Moses' sister to act in such a way? Faith. Faith. Romans ten seventeen says that faith comes through what? Hearing. So what must have happened here? They didn't muster faith. What must have happened for them to have faith? God told them something. What do you think he told them? Protect Moses. Now, this isn't just making things up. We don't muster faith on our own. It wasn't like, ooh, look at how faithful they were by their own accord. Faith in and of itself is the sign of a very needy person. Our faith is not in ourselves. Our faith is in our Lord. And it was by faith that they did what they did. And if Romans 10, 17 is true, that faith comes through hearing, they must have heard something from the Lord. Apparently, they've heard from the Lord, and what they're doing is moving accordingly in faith. I also want us to consider the boldness of Moses' sister. What is Moses' sister by, by title? Sister, what else? A slave, a Hebrew slave. Where? In Egypt. During what time? The time where they're being greatly oppressed, right? It's not like the good old days in, in the land of Goshen. It's very different now. And so um, I want us to consider her boldness. She approached the Pharaoh's daughter. Oh, I, I looked her name up earlier. Evidently, the Pharaoh only had one daughter, oddly. Um, Corey, do you know her name? No. Um, what is it? Oh, anyway. Was, uh... All right. I'll email that to y'all. Um, but anyway, um, 
This is to Pharaoh's daughter. What kind of a home was Pharaoh's daughter brought up in? Very rich, very affluent. Well, sure. Yeah. What else? Yep. Servants and slaves tending to her. Mm -hmm. And so what would her view of Israelites be? Oppress them. They're trying to outdo us. So we kill their babies. That's her view. Her dad is the one who's enforcing that. Okay. Um, So we have this Hebrew slave that is supposed to be being afflicted. Um, I like the way that this passage reminds us about obedience and faithfulness. Uh, We don't just sit idly by and wait for something to happen. I really like the movement here of of Moses' big sister. She has made uh, a wise decision to be in the right place at the right time so that she might move in faith according to kingdom good. It's not just like, she didn't just put the baby in the river and, well, God's going to do what God's going to do and walk away. She uses wisdom. She's moving in faith here. It says that she, what did it say? Um, she stood by. His sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Like she was there ready to, to do whatever was needed. She didn't just, it wasn't a hopeless thrusting of her baby brother into the river. She was filled with hope and she stood by to see what would happen. And then as she saw what was happening, she chose her words very carefully and she moved carefully rather than just being passive. Again, the realities of God's sovereignty do not cause passive observation, but active obedience. It's a really sweet picture here that a very unlikely source would have, I mean, what would happen if, if she didn't do this? Just play it out. Take it to its ad absurdum extent. What would happen if she didn't do this? Yeah, his mom would not have nursed him. Would, would, yeah, there would be no Israel influence. And if he doesn't know he's even an Israelite, what does that mean? What else does he not know? God? Like, this is a really pivotal thing. Like, a lot of times we see these actions that we do in life as very insignificant. I don't want to sensationalize everything. But try to be as faithful as you can possibly be in everything you do, in every word you speak, because you never know what other things are going on. All she did was step in and say, would you like me to find someone to nurse that baby? It was all she did. And look at how it turned the whole thing about. She went and got her mom, who got paid to nurse her own baby. Wouldn't you like that? Um, there was a diligence uh, that came here that I, I believe, again, you know, making parallels to Sunday as well. Uh, you're diligent in prayerfulness, and there's, from prayerfulness comes diligence. And I think she was diligent in this because of her communication with the Lord. She had heard from the Lord. And by hearing, she has faith. Let's also consider a comparison. What are some similarities between Moses floating in the river and us and our sin? We'll talk about this just a little bit more. As Moses is floating there as a baby in the river, and we are steeped in sin, what are the similarities? Sure couldn't pull himself out. Rescued, yeah. 
What else? Headed for destruction. Isn't it interesting that she didn't take the baby like to the woods? I mean, the river's a place of death for Hebrew baby boys. So only in listening to the Lord would she do such a bold thing as placing the baby in the basket in this river of death where he can't get out on his own. I mean, that, talk about, I mean, faithfulness. Just imagine letting go of that basket and what that would be like. My first instinct would not be to go to the river unless I'd heard from the Lord. Imminent death in a place of death unless acted upon by an outside force. He cannot save himself. The baby cannot swim. The baby cannot crawl out of the basket. The baby cannot feed himself or give drink to himself while in the basket in this river of death. Moses could not save himself. He could not make himself more useful for kingdom good, could he? Depravity. This is a picture of depravity, at least. Depravity. Couldn't do anything to save himself. A.W. Pink states, death is the wages of sin. He gets that from the Bible that says the wages of sin is death. He just switched it up. (laughs) Death is the wages of sin. And from this, there can be no escape. Having flagrantly broken God's holy law, justice demands the execution of its penalty. But is not this to close the door of hope against us or seal our doom? Ah, it is just at this point that the gospel announces God's gracious provision and tells us that life comes through death. Though Moses was brought to the place of death, he was made secure in the ark. And this speaks to us of Christ, who died for us as the payment of sin's awful wages. Turn to Ephesians 2. Verse 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. Think about Revelation 18. All those who were following the course of the world and as soon as judgment came upon the world, they were broken and hopeless, completely depraved, unable to even go anywhere. There was no place to unload the cargo that was once so precious and now had no value. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest, the rest of mankind. What's wrath towards? Because it does what? Okay. But God... Sweet, sweet words in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, about as helpless and hopeless as a little baby floating in a little bitty ark in a river of death, but God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Had Moses done anything to merit it? I mean, if we're really reaching, we can say he was pretty. But does it merit salvation? 
and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What I'm wanting us to see with great clarity is that God arranged Moses' provision, and God arranged your provision. Does that make sense? It wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't a gut reaction. It wasn't a knee jerk. God arranged Moses' provision, God arranged it so that he would speak to his family in such a manner that they would put him in the river in the manner that they did, in the place that they did, at the time of day that they did, so that Pharaoh's daughter would come down and bathe and have, and have servants who would be in that area of the river. And for whatever reason, Pharaoh would have pity on this child. It's by God's hand. God arranged Moses' provision. And God arranged your provision. You didn't earn it. You can't earn it. It's impossible to earn it. There is no merit in us to be able to achieve the salvation that we've been given in Christ. It was arranged. Arranged provision. Now, we're going to make a transition between verses 10 and 11 that we need another verse to understand the transition. Turn to Acts 7. Because we have a baby in a river and then we're going to have an adult here. And so something happened between that time And Acts 7 gives us understanding into what happened. And this is Stephen's speech, which we should all memorize probably. It's amazing. But look at 722. He's explaining these generations of faith and these generations of God's provision. And he gets to the part about Moses and he says in verse 22. So it's like we just read Exodus 2 verse 10. And now we're going to read Exodus 722. So it'll get us to Exodus 2 verse 11. Verse 22, and Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. So Moses had an understanding of the Egyptian culture and their wisdom that was much like Joseph's, right? Joseph had great understanding in the Egyptian culture. He looked like an Egyptian and walked and all that stuff. And, um, and so Moses was the same way. He was very, very, very understanding and informed us to the Egyptian culture, and he was full of good deeds. So it wasn't like he was this uh, eyesore of an Israelite in the Egyptian palace. He, he looked the part, he played the part, and he was very well informed as to what Egyptian life and culture was. And I'll turn to Exodus 2, verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, so now we know something of his growing up, Growing up as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people. So he still knew because of his upbringing with his mom who his people were. He was raised in the Egyptian ways, but he, he knew who his people were, the Israelites. It says he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Think about what this would cause in his heart. Think about the thoughts that would be stirred. He looked this way and that. 
And seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. So Moses, forefather of the faith, one of the greatest that has ever been raised up by the Lord to do his purposes, is also a murderer. This means he saw the Egyptian in the Hebrew, he saw the Egyptian strike the Hebrew, Moses comes in, strikes the Egyptian, kills him, uh uh-oh, buries him in the sand. Is that that godly? Is, Is murder godly? No. I mean, I've heard some commentators look at this and say, that's right, you don't mess with the Hebrews. Murder's not godly, period. This is not a high point of him in his journey of faith. This is what you would call a low point, a bad decision, sin. Now, verses like this remind us of the fidelity and the clarity and the trueness of our gospel. In other religions, the flaws and the sinful natures of the heroes of their faith are left out. Like, look how great this person is. Look how great this person is. Be like that person. Who wrote these verses? Moses. Would you have included that if you were him? No, I'd have probably been like, um, let's just jump to the part where I save a bunch of people and lead them out of Egypt. He included it. Why? All scripture is what? Breathed out by God. So, there's this clarity and fidelity and trueness here. Adam was a sinner. Abraham was a whiner. Sarah laughed at God as though he was ridiculous. Lot was steeped in sexual sin of a perverse and gross nature. Jacob was a polygamist. David was an adulterer. Solomon had literally hundreds of wives and concubines. Paul killed Christians. Peter denied Jesus. Redemption has little worth if the things you're being redeemed from are left out. I mean, redemption is incredibly valuable because I know I really need redemption. The light is not as bright unless there's a backdrop of darkness, as you've heard. The fact that these details are included keep us from saying, be like Moses or just be like David. Our message doesn't stop there. I mean, yes, imitate the faith of those who have gone before us who had strong faith, but it doesn't stop at be like Moses or be like David. Rather, our attention is turned to the God of Moses and the God of David. Turn to James 5.16. I, I really, I don't know if you're allowed to say you don't like a verse. I don't like this one very much because I'm a sinner. This one's very hard to me because I'm a sinner. As sinners, we don't always read God's word and we're like, oh, that's perfect. I'll do that. And sometimes like, oh, I'm such a sinner. That clarity, that truth from the Lord has shined a big bright spotlight on the fact that I'm a sinner. James 5, 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Confess your sins to one another And pray for one another that you may be healed. I've always had a hard time with this because my thinking is, I'll confess my sins to God. Man's not trustworthy. I'll confess my sins to God. Why does any other feeble, common, fragile man like myself need to hear about my sins? I, I mean, I really have wrestled with this verse in my life. As pastors, we, I mean... I've heard of so many different pastors saying, 
If I confess my sin, I lose my job. How about no? Or people who aren't pastors, people who are members of the church, if I confess my sin, I will be shunned. What goes with confession here? Healing. This verse isn't about what you're comfortable confessing. In confession, there's healing. Moses confesses as a means of allowing us to see what his great God redeemed him from. So oddly enough, as uncomfortable as it is, and even as I say it, with hopefully with a little bit of clarity and a bit of passion, I'm sure that many of us would be like, yeah, I still don't like that. Others can worship God because of the sin you are being delivered from. Confess your sins to one another so that there's healing. Too many of us would like for everyone else to think that God didn't need to redeem us from too much. Oh, yes, I needed redemption, but no, not that much. Like we just needed a little redemption, not a lot. Our Bibles are unique because they include the sin account of our greatest heroes of the faith. There's no one other than Jesus who goes unscathed in this book. It's unique in that manner. And it reminds us of our great need for redemption because of our sin. Confess your sins to one another so that there's healing. Look at verse 13 in Exodus 2. Look what happens. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling. These are his brethren. He's a peacemaker. I mean, Moses has got this thing in him where the Lord has worked in him this thing. I mean, the word says that blessed are those who make peace. I say that to my girls all the time when they're fighting and pulling on each other's hair and kickboxing, kicking each other in the head. They're violent little girls. And I say, girls, blessed are the peacemakers. God blesses those who make peace. He's a peacemaker. He didn't like it when they were struggling. He killed a guy. That was bad. But he's a peacemaker. So he sees his Hebrew brothers fighting. Hey, man, guys, why are you fighting? Why are you struggling with each other? And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? The man looks at Moses and says, who made you a prince and judge over us? Well, he didn't know it, but he could have said God. He could have. Not, not many of us can say that. He could have gone, the Lord of Israel. This is prophetic in a sense where the Lord is making him a prince and judge over the Hebrew people. But do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Uh-oh. You didn't look hard enough because he looked both ways, killed and buried him in the sand. But evidently someone saw, and now the word's out. You're going to kill me like you did the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid. I bet you would be too. And thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. I mean, Moses grew up in Pharaoh's house. Like, that's my granddaddy who wants to kill me now. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now, this sets a stage. We'll go through quickly. Look at verses 16 through 22. Then he goes to the well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. I don't know why the shepherds are brutal here, um, but they are. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. I mean, Moses, again and again, he's put in these scenarios where he's able to redeem, save, make peace. So he takes care of these seven daughters. When they came home to their father, real. We'll call him Jethro, because that's what they call him later. It's a cooler name. He said, 
How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds. Now, why did they say Egyptian? That's what he looks like. An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? (laughs) Really? You ran across a keeper and you didn't bring him back? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a soldier in a foreign land. Now, it's interesting how all of these guys meet their ladies at the local watering hole, isn't it? I don't know why. It's like everyone thinks they're going to meet their future spouse at a bar, the local watering hole. Um, But... It ha- it's happened over and over again, so it's an interesting thing to consider. And also consider how Jethro had to teach his daughters uh, the right response, right? That, I mean, this is not a major thing. Um, and by the way, I wouldn't suggest aiming to meet your future spouse at the little watering hole. That's not what I meant, just observation. Um, Patrick. Um, so uh, consider how Jethro had to actually teach his daughters the right response. That's how it is in parenting. It takes a lot of patience. Um, I mean, there's times where someone has given my daughter something and she's like, awesome. And I'm like, no, no, no. There's a right response here. Say, thank you. Hug their neck, whatever. There's a right response. And so he has to teach them a right response. I also want you to consider God's timing here. Gershom is currently safe from Egyptian brutality. Verses 23 through 25, during those many days, this is sweet, the king of Egypt died And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. It's gotten worse. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. We close with this really sweet encouragement that the Israelites will not be defined by their years in slavery. They'll be defined because they are a covenant people with God, and he will deliver them. And we close with the sweet encouragement of the very relational and personal character of our God. Remember, he's only relational because he's chosen to be so. He doesn't need us because of some detriment that exists, some, some malnourishment that exists within the Trinity. He's perfectly content, Father, Son, and Spirit. He didn't, he didn't create us so that he'd have a, 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 someone to have over to play. He's perfectly content. But he's relational and he's personal. That's why you should care about people, because God does. You need him. He didn't. You should care about people because God does, relational and personal. Look at the words there. He heard, he remembered, he saw, and he knew. Some of us need to be reminded that God is unchanging. So when we cry out, his response isn't any different. He hears you. I mean, 1 John 5, 14 says this is the confidence that we have. When we go to our Lord, he hears us. There's a certain confidence that exists when, when you know that God hears you. It's important to know that. And if you're in a state where you're offering up prayers and thinking, surely things would be different if he actually heard me, be encouraged by this, that, that he does. He, he does hear you. Um, so the stage is set uh, for uh, the burning bush and a lot of movement with the people of Israel and Egypt. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time in this. Uh, I really pray, Lord, that 
I don't know. I'm just, I just want us to walk in this. I don't. A study that's like an hour long is just not sufficient for us to totally get this. Um, so I pray that we would leave here, and like we do any other time the word is preached or taught, that we would go and walk in the truth. I pray that we would operate in a manner where our minds are ever aware and mindful of the fact that we are, we are like baby Moses floating in a river of death in our sin. And our only hope of redemption exists outside of us in you in Christ. I pray that that would affect the conversations we have with our friends tonight. I pray that that would affect the way we respond to our children. Uh, I pray that it would affect the way we live with our spouse in an understanding way. I pray that it would affect our focus that we might be using our words and our actions and operating within the relationships that we have and serving the capacities you've called us to serve in a manner where where much fruit is produced for your glory. Uh, Lord, I am a horrible, wicked sinner. And I am desperately needy. Lord, these verses humble us. These verses sober us up um, so that we might be privy to the reality that, that our God is much greater than we give much thought to a lot of times. Uh, our God is one who hears and sees and remembers and knows, um, even in our darkest hours, much like Israel in Egypt being oppressed. Uh, we love you very much, Lord. Um, I, pray that you would, I pray that you would bless families as they leave here and hang out together. I pray that as all the children are studying the same things that we're studying, that better conversations would be fostered. Uh, Lord, we love you very much. We thank you for Jesus, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.